after more than 18 months of interrupted worship and so many things that have transpired in our own lives and in the world around us, we simply don't want to take for granted that we know what our purpose is, what we're up to as the body of Christ. And while we won't answer every question, we hope to begin that conversation and get us thinking with the study of Romans 12. So our text this morning is on page 1,123. If you're following in your pew Bible, we'll begin reading with verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, Form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, for the past few months, applications have been coming in. Many of you will know, and if you are new to Blacknell, let me tell you, then we, that we have a transition team in place reviewing applications for the position of interim senior pastor. That's interim senior pastor. If that's news to you, you want to know more about it, ask Dave, ask a member of the transition team, an elder, me, But as a part of the application process, candidates have to write a cover letter and submit a statement of faith, along with many other documents. As I've read through the book of Romans this time, I keep thinking about this application process. You see, the book of Romans is a letter. It's a letter addressed by the Apostle Paul to a church He's never met, kind of like a cover letter. Many of Paul's other letters are written to churches that Paul founded, that Paul pastored, but that's not the case with Romans. Though Paul certainly knew some members of the church in Rome, he didn't start the church. He hadn't spent a summer preaching at the church. He hadn't even been there for a visit. He no doubt had many reasons to write the letter of Romans, but at least one is this. To recommend himself, to win the congregation over, so that when he came, the church would receive him as a kind of supported missionary, or you might say, 
interim pastor. What would it be like to welcome the Apostle Paul as an interim pastor? Well, for one thing, he would not mince words. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, he writes to a church he's never met. He doesn't say, I'm sure this would never be a problem for you, but I've seen it in some other places. No, he strongly warns them, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Paul addresses head-on the danger of pride and status in the church. Why would these Christians be tempted to think too highly of themselves? Well, we can imagine a few reasons. First, perhaps because of their social status. There were clearly defined markers of status in ancient Roman society. Being a man, being a free man, being from an old family, being from a member of the Senate. But then, as now, social status had many aspects. A wealthy widow found herself in a different position than her married female friends. The youngest son of a respectable family that had fallen on hard times would have had some privileges and some limitations that were unknown to a freed slave who had made his fortune. You get the idea. In society, we work out ways of negotiating these differences in status, don't we? Who gets an invitation and who does not? Who is the host here and who's the guest? Where do people sit when they arrive? Whose office do we meet in? These habits and impulses do not simply go away when we become Christians. The jailer, the slave girl, the businesswoman, they all had to figure out how to relate to one another as the first and only Christian community in the city of Philippi. The wealthy in Corinth had to learn to eat at the Lord's table next to the poor. Paul had every reason to believe that these same issues would affect the church in Rome and us. Church members may have also been tempted to have an inflated view of themselves because of their spiritual gifts. Those who spoke in tongues may have looked down on those who did not as less spiritually mature or enlightened. Perhaps the issue was background and heritage. Those of Jewish origin felt they really belonged here, while those of Gentile origin were second-class citizens, lucky to get a seat. Or those of Gentile background were now in the majority and in leadership and had little patience for the traditions and concerns of their Jewish brothers and sisters. Paul hints at such tensions in his extended discussion of the strong and the weak in chapter 14. He seems to know about, or have seen in other places, conflicts centering around what you eat and when you worship. These would be concerns of Jewish Christians who were accustomed to worshiping on a fixed Sabbath and keeping kosher. 
So what was it for the Romans? Ethnicity, liberty, spiritual superiority, wealth, social status, some combination of the above? The fact is we don't know. But what we do know from the bulk of the New Testament and from our own experiences is that there are innumerable reasons that we are tempted to think of ourselves more highly than we ought and as a result to look down on our brothers and sisters. You maybe, maybe you read something like what Paul wrote in Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ, and you think, hallelujah, our baptism frees us from our social tensions and God-given differences melt away, and we're transferred to this parallel universe of perfect humility and holy kisses and kumbaya. We'll keep reading. And you'll see that though we are one in Christ, Paul spends an awful lot of time instructing Jews and Greeks and males and females and slaves and free just how to live together. It doesn't just magically melt away. When it comes to the church, it's easy to go from being idealistic to disillusioned to disengaged altogether. The church is not the place where pride magically melts away, but where we are, or should be, faced with our temptation to view ourselves more highly than we ought, and offered a new way to see ourselves and one another. This is the renewing of our minds that Paul spoke about. If our point of reference is other people, we will continually rank ourselves against them. She's so much smarter than me, but I'm so much more clever than her. He's so successful, but I'm really the mover and shaker in this crowd. He's so popular, but he's so awkward, and on and on and on. It never ends, even when you get out of middle school. There's a saying attributed to Betsy Poole that we're all really in seventh grade. But what is the result? That either on an individual basis or on a systematic basis through structures and laws, we avoid those that we perceive to either be too accomplished or those that we perceive to be beneath us. But in Christ, there is a new calculus, friends. The new calculus is not human comparison, but the generosity of God. Not human comparison, but God's generosity. In sober judgment, we realize what the haze of pride otherwise conceals. That each of us, no matter how right our heritage, how upstanding our lives are, we live in a way that leads to ruin, but for God. This is the story that Paul recounts in the beginning of Romans. The most important thing about each one of us is not our degrees or our talent or our beauty or our youth, but God's mercy, not our deficit or success, but the faith generously given by God to each of us.
The generosity of God is the key that releases us from crippling self-consciousness or from the pressure of constructing your own unique identity. The generosity of God is the key that frees you to love, to see fellow Christians no longer as competition, but as members of a common body. Our differences are no longer a deficit or a threat, but evidence of the sheer gratuitousness of God's mercy, a mercy which simply cannot be fully reflected in one life or in 100 identical lives. Instead, in his graciousness, God gives different gifts that all reflect him. Prophecy, mercy, teaching, and on and on. Friends, the church is a league of mutually dependent partial reflections of God's goodness, not a voluntary association of self-sufficient individuals. We are Mr. Potato Head, not a bunch of Barbie and Kins. <laughs> I'm very serious about that. The Lord has not given any one person every gift he needs to sustain him in the Christian life. The Lord hasn't given any one person every gift she needs alone to incarnate the body of Christ. As I look out on this room, I know that if I asked for a show of hands of who feels physical aches and pains this morning, quite a few of you would be ready to raise your hand and tell us about back trouble, sleep issues, disease, recovery from surgery, and on and on. So also, many of you know the aches and pains that come with being part of the body of Christ. And if I asked for a show of hands, could tell about disappointment, about being passed over or pressured or simply underwhelmed by this life together. The historical record reveals the church as an institution that, well, too readily has been splintered by difference. Jew, Gentile, Protestant, Catholic, black and white, rather than united in mutual dependence. Even the body of Christ experiences its aches and pains and limitations, sometimes to an overwhelming, crippling extent. But still, despite all this, friends, I say to you that the church remains the place where you may best know the generosity of God far more than you will ever know it alone. We know God's mercy through the manifold gifts of his people more than we will know it by ourselves. Paul, who we are imagining here as an applicant for the interim pastor job at the church in Rome, concludes this section with an exhortation for each person to use his or her gifts to build up the body, not themselves. And I'm confident that we will hear the same thing from our interim pastor, not I'm here to get things done, Blacknell, but I'm calling on you to use your gifts. And I believe that is what this person will find. 
One of the greatest joys of this season has been to see how the Lord is giving you all the gifts we need in this strange time. I have heard from you what I would call timely, prophetic, truthful words. I have seen you here serving again and again. Even as we have difficult conversations, the Lord seems to call forth encouragement and exhortation at just the right moments. There has been generous giving. I often hear the concern, but I don't know what my gifts are. And it could be good to go home and learn more about the gifts described in the various lists in the New Testament. But I don't think our greatest challenge is a lack of knowledge that could be solved by a spiritual gifts test. What we need, what I'm praying for for us in this season, is increased faith in the generosity of God. You don't need to know exactly what your gift is and to find the specific opportunity that matches it if you're confident that God is not stingy or forgetful, that he's given you something, then you are free to be and to serve. And with that comes the conviction that the Lord in his great generosity has given them to your right and your left. The Christians across the street at St. Joe's and down the street at St. John's and the Christians that you encounter at work both to your delight and sometimes to your embarrassment, that God in his great generosity has also given them something to build up the church. Ministries like reality ministries exist not so that we can use our gifts of service, but so that we might have the opportunity to encounter and recognize the gifts that God has given them to build us up. Friends, we need every gift that God has given. Where are we most likely to overlook or to be unable to recognize the generosity of God to his people? During this strange time of transition, how might we learn to see and celebrate new gifts? In Christ, we though many, form one body. And each member, each member belongs to all the others. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, expose our distorted thinking. Show us where pride causes us to be dismissive of others in this room. Where pride causes us to cower and self-protect. Where pride has insulated us from so much of your body. And help us, Lord, to recognize your gifts at work Lord, where we feel like we don't have enough, reveal to us what you have indeed given and help us adapt.
Would you make our body, this little part of your church, a faithful reflection of your body, which was a living sacrifice for us all? We make this great request in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.